You've heard me say it lots of times. To lead well, you need to lead yourself well first. And one key area of life is how you're managing your finances. On today's episode, the critical things to know about retirement, investments, insurance, credit agencies, and more. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 322. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that once in a while, I take a little bit of a step sideways from the core topics of leadership to zero in on a topic that is one that would be of importance to all of us as leaders, but uh, may not necessarily be the first thing we think of when we think of leadership. And one of those topics is how we handle our finances and our money. You've heard me say many times, if we're going to be an effective leader, we need to be able to take care of ourselves first. And there are many things that fall under that umbrella. And one of the key ones is what we are doing or not doing to take care of our finances and manage our wealth so that we can do better for ourselves, for our families, and ultimately be better to serve our organizations. And today, I am thrilled to welcome a guest who is an expert on money and finances and is going to help us to learn and understand some of the key areas of financial management that every one of us should be thinking about as leaders and professionals. And that is Jill Schlesinger. Jill is the Emmy-nominated business analyst for CBS News. She appears on CBS radio and television stations nationwide, covering the economy, markets, investing, and anything else that has a dollar sign on it. She is a weekly guest on NPR's Here and Now, appears on American Public Media's Marketplace Weekend, and is a contributor to Money Magazine. Jill is also the host of the Better Off podcast and of the nationally syndicated radio show Jill on Money, which airs in over 95 markets. Jill, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Thank you so much for having me. I've been listening to the Better Off podcast for a year now. I love your perspective. And one of the questions you ask everyone who comes on your show, in fact, the first question you ask is, what's the best money decision you ever made? So of course, I'm going to ask that question to you. What's the best money decision you've ever made, Jill? Oh, darn it. I hate when someone does his homework like that. That's really (laughs) bad. Are you kidding me? Uh, The best money decision that I ever made was to invest primarily in my own human capital, meaning that instead of worrying about whether I was going to try to find a hot stock or whether I was going to invest even in another company or be an angel investor, I took the money that I had, the resources I had, and invested it either in my own business or my own career. And that has paid dividends far beyond my wildest dreams. So that investing in me and investing in my business adventures, that's been the very smartest money decision I've ever made. What's something looking back now that was an investment you made early on in that capacity that's really turned uh, turned into great things for you? I think that for me, the 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 best investment probably, you know, just in terms of like a funny thing that I could tell you, like paid off incredibly well just in this iteration of my career, is I actually hired a voice coach. Imagine that, right? Oh. Uh, I was very new at CBS and they had done some talent training because I was, uh, my background is I was a Wall Street trader turned investment advisor 
who used media to get business. And what's kind of fascinating is that they sent me to uh, a coach, a talent coach, and there was a woman out on the West Coast and they gave me um, a half a day with her. And I thought she was so incredibly impactful and helpful that I then hired her for, you know, maybe three more days of her time. And honestly, to have this woman, I'm going to plug her right now. Her name is Marilyn Pittman. She absolutely changed the trajectory of my career just by providing very useful and actionable tips for managing myself both on TV and on radio. And to this day, I go back to that training session, which occurred, uh, must have been eight or nine years ago, and listen to those tapes, and I learn something new every time. Mm, Wow, what a great example of investing in yourself. And it's actually a great lead into what we're going to be talking about today, because if we are going to serve others well, we have to invest in ourselves first. And this is a topic, Jill, as you know, that a lot of people feel like they don't necessarily know what to do or what are the first steps to take. And they hear all of these different terms um, out there on ways they can invest. And people don't know where to start. And so maybe we can start at the beginning and just look at, you know, what are some of the core basic things that everyone should be doing as far as they're investing and planning for retirement? You know, we, we all hear these terms, 401k, IRAs, Roths, where should people start if they're just beginning to think about investing and taking care of their financial lives? You know, when I think about starting, I have labeled something called the big three. And I think it might be surprising to learn that there are plenty of very accomplished leaders, managers, even small business owners who have not actually dealt with their big three. And the big three is that you get rid of all of your consumer debt. So credit cards or auto loans that are very expensive, you pay that down, you're done. The second component is to establish an emergency reserve fund. And that reserve fund should mean that you have six to 12 months of your living expenses set aside in a liquid account that you can get your hands on just in case something bad happens. And the third thing is to maximize your retirement plan contributions. Now, That can mean that you work for a company and there is a 401k and you're going to put in the most that you possibly can. This year, that's $18,000. Next year, it's $18,500. If it means that you only have, you don't have a retirement plan available to you and maybe you have a IRA or a Roth IRA, put away the maximum that you can or, or put away as much as you can swallow at this point in your life. I would venture to guess that had most of America had those three basic points covered leading into the year 2008, the damage of the Great Recession would not have been nearly as significant. One of the questions that people ask you a lot is about financial advisors, and you're a uh, certified financial planner yourself. Who needs a financial advisor, and how do you go about finding one? That is such a great question because although I I was a practicing certified financial planner, I maintain my designation. I am actually the certified financial planner board of standards senior ambassador. So I'm a mouthpiece for them. I love the organization. That doesn't mean that every single person needs a financial advisor. So I think oftentimes uh, this will happen to me at work. I'm at CBS, I'm in the building and people say, can you refer me to an advisor? And I'll say, let's talk about what's going on in your life. 
and I'll find that they have not achieved those three steps that I just outlined. And I said, you know, you really don't need an advisor until you get to those three steps. So one good rule of thumb is that when I'm done paying down my debt, I've got my emergency reserve stashed away. I've now maxed out my retirement account. Do I have any other issues that I really need guidance on? And if you do, maybe it's, I really need to understand what it would mean for me to put more money away to supplement my retirement account versus putting away money for my kid's college education. Or gosh, I, I'm in, I got to take care of my aging parents and that's eating into my ability to actually save for retirement. I need a game plan to help me with that. So I think sometimes there are single issues that would make you at least encourage you to look at an advisor. And then there could be overall planning issues that you really need uh, someone's objective eye to help guide you through that, especially when you're coming to some sort of critical milestone in your life. And, you know, the, the biggies in financial planning are like the biggies in anyone's life. So it's marriage, birth, death, illness, change of jobs. All those things are often the trigger points to get people to say, maybe I need some help. Maybe I need a plan here. Maybe I need a professional. If you are seeking an advisor, of course, I'm partial to CFPs. So you can go to the website, letsmakeaplan.org and you pop your zip code in and you'll find a CFP professional in your neighborhood or nearby. And you can start talking to people and understand what are the services that they can provide to see whether or not they can help you out. And one thing that I've learned over the years of not only from your show, but also and Bonnie and I navigating this ourselves in our own lives is there's there's different ways that people work. So one way is that they, uh, you know, some financial planners may get a, a commission or may get a percentage of the amount of investments they offer. And then some advisors work on like a fee-based system. Could could you explain the difference for, for all of us on, on how that works? Absolutely. So, you know, this is one of the problems with financial advice giving, which is it's really hard to waft through all of the different fee structures that are out there. So as you said, there, I, I would say there's sort of two big camps. One is the camp of a commission. So you, you say, okay, we, we have a five-year-old kid. We need some more insurance. Let's go and get some insurance. You go meet with a financial advisor, a financial consultant, or an insurance salesperson. That person may or may not do some big financial plan that may just do a quick needs analysis for your insurance. That person will sell you an insurance policy and collect a commission for doing so. That's one typical way of having a financial person in your life. Another way is, as you said, hey, I've got a million dollars. I want to invest it. I've left my job. Life's good, but I don't want to manage the money myself. You can go to a, an advisor and that advisor may say, okay, I will manage your money. I'll do your financial planning. And um, as part of that whole process, I will charge you 1% of the assets that I manage. So on your million bucks, you're going to pay me 10 grand a year. And, you know, it sounds like a lot, although, you know, if you're really bad at investing or you're a very emotional person or you're really kind of freaked out about doing it yourself, it might sound very cheap. Kind of depends where you're coming from. Yeah. 
and then there's the the third type, which is called a fee-only financial advisor or financial planner. These are the folks who tend to do a flat fee either for managing your money, conducting a financial plan, and it can be 5000 It could be 10000 It depends on the complexity of your situation. If you're seeking a fee-only financial advisor, many of them are certified financial planners as well, but there's actually an organization of just the fee-only people, and that's called NAPFA, N-A-P-F-A, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. And you can go check out their website at napfa.org. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I think that in a weird way that, that many of these, um, many of these fee systems have come under fire for lots of different reasons. Specifically, I think the commission-based folks, it's hard to know how much you're really paying because a lot of the fees get buried in the cost of these products. Whereas with a fee-based person, someone who says, hey, you know, you're going to pay a percentage of what I manage, that's easy to understand. And if someone says, hey, Dave... I'm going to charge you and your wife five grand to do a full comprehensive financial plan. You go invest it on your own. That's easy to understand. Regardless of which you choose, you are entitled and should be asking two important questions. Number one is, hey, you, advisor, how much exactly am I paying for your services? Include everything. Include the commissions, including the cost of the mutual funds or the stocks that I'm buying. Include everything. What is my cost? Number two, Are you held to the fiduciary standard? Oh, isn't that a big word? Fiduciary essentially means that the person giving you the financial advice must put your best interests first before his or his firm's. And the fiduciary standard, I think, is the gold seal of financial advice. Doesn't mean you're going to like the person. Doesn't mean that's the smartest person in the world. It just means that you know going into the arrangement that person must put your needs first and they have signed up for the scrutiny under which to operate to do that. And I was under the mistaken impression that everyone was a fiduciary when it came to this uh, this industry and it turns out not the case. So that's important to ask that question. All right. So I want to ask you a little bit about families and kids because you know, a lot of our listeners have families, have children. Um, and, and one of the questions that I think almost every family at least thinks about, if not uh, invests in, is life insurance. Mm-hmm. What are the things we should be thinking about these days when thinking about life insurance and different products out there and, and options? Uh, and, and, are, and are there things that most people should be considering and, and things most people should be avoiding. I'm just, uh, I'm just curious what your opinion is. I have so much hate mail from the insurance agents in the universe. So if you're an insurance agent, do not hate on me. Okay. <laughs> do not hate on no me. hate mail to Jill. Okay. No hate mail. Here's why I think, first of all, I'm a huge fan of life insurance. Huge. I think it is one of those very necessary components, like a cornerstone of a family's financial security. And as you said, a lot of people have to deal with this, right? I have a kid, I get married. So who needs insurance? You need life insurance. If your death would result in the financial hardship in another. So, you know, I think sometimes people are like, I don't have kids. I don't have to buy life insurance. And then you come to find out, well, wait a minute, aren't you supporting your brother? 
Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, mm-hmm. what happens if you were to die? Well, oh, I never thought of that. So remember, that's the first question. Would your death result in the financial hardship in someone else? You could be married to somebody where you're the main wage earner. So Dave and I are married. I make a million dollars a year. Dave makes $15,000 a year. I'm supporting the lifestyle. My premature death would really hurt you. So I buy life insurance to help protect against an unforeseen premature death. That all makes sense. And I think every insurance agent would absolutely agree. Where we differ is the type of life insurance that can cover your need. Nine times out of 10, when you are buying life insurance, you should be buying something called term life insurance. You have the insurance for a specific period of time or a term. And after that term is over, the insurance disappears. And what you're really saying is that Dave and I are married. We have two kids. Our kids are three and five. In the next 30 years, what will happen is if one of us were to die, the other one would be left raising the kids. We would want enough money put aside to raise the kids, to fund the other the survivor's retirement, to put money into a, a, a an education fund for our two kids. But as time marches on, you know what happens is the kids get older, you're saving more money for retirement, so you have more assets. And at the end of that term, your kids are adults essentially, you don't need life insurance for them, And you've saved enough money for your own and your partner's retirement needs. So you don't actually have to carry that life insurance anymore. And that is why term life insurance tends to be the best option, again, for nine out of 10 cases. The the 10th case is when there is a need to maintain insurance for your entire life. That's called whole life insurance or permanent life insurance. You need that if you're buying life insurance for estate planning needs. You need that if you're buying life insurance because you have a special needs child. Or you need that kind of insurance if you are endowing some big, massive trust of some sort. When we got our life insurance, we went to our uh, insurance agency that handles our car and homeowner's insurance. Uh, Is that a good starting point for most people, or are there other things that folks should consider when thinking about uh, looking at life insurance for the first time? Well, I mean, first of all, there are so many awesome calculators out there. It used to be uh, when I got into the planning business 155 years ago or so, <laughs> uh, we, we we used our calculators and went through line by line how much money we thought you needed for life insurance. We projected a future value, brought it back to a present value, and we bought insurance in that amount. Now, you can go and find a calculator. There's a great website called lifehappens.org. You can plug in, hey, here's how much money I make. Here's how much my partner makes. Here's our kids. Here's how much money we have saved so far. Here's how long we think we're going to live. And, you know, honestly, you don't know how long you're going to live. Use a very long life as as expected because you don't want to underinsure, right? So you put all the numbers in and pops, and a number will pop out. And if the number pops out to, say, a million dollars or less, you've got a ton of options. Yeah, sure, you can go buy your life insurance through your auto insurance. You can go to an online solution. There's a place called Haven Life 
which is completely online. You do the whole application online. You can get approved online. You can get issued online. You can go to a financial planner and say, as part of my whole financial plan, I want there to be an insurance needs analysis. I want you to refer me to somebody who's going to get me cheap term life insurance. You can get cheap term life insurance on your own even by going through a credit union. There's all sorts of associations. So by and large, what we know is that life insurance is one of those weird products that's very confusing but should not be. Mm-hmm. So that's the most important thing for me to reiterate. Really, really simple solution, term life insurance for the amount of time you think you're going to need it, and it's essentially a commodity. So, you know, yes, I would like you to not go to Joe's Insurance because we'd like to hope they're going to be around for 30 years, yeah. but most of them are interchangeable. Make sure you compare apples to apples. All right. So 529 plans I want to ask you about too, because that relates to kids and college savings. And I I hear a lot of things about 529 plans and and different states, at least folks here in the States and being able to select options. What are some of the basic things we should know about it? I heart 529 plans. I would like get a tattoo that says I heart 529 plans because it is a tax efficient way to save for education. It if you want to think about it, here's here's a very easy way to consider it. It is a way to put an after-tax dollar into an account. That account will grow without any taxation. And when you pull the money out to pay for qualified education expenses, you will not be taxed. So let me just pause for a second here. There are plenty of times where I've had people call the radio show or the podcast and say to me, oh, well, my broker says that he can do better than a 529 plan. And I will often just start laughing and I'll say, really? You mean your broker can somehow not have the Uncle Sam or your state charge taxes on this account? That's really something else. Mm. And it is nearly impossible to beat tax efficiency in that form. So a 529 plan is by far the most efficient way, I think, and the best way to save for college expenses. One thing that's kind of neat about a 529 plan is that if you're lucky enough to have some rich aunt or uncle or parent, they can pile in a lot of money in the 529 plans and do it in excess of that $14,000 a year gift allowance. They can basically say, okay, Dave and Jill are my grandchildren. I want to put a hundred grand in each of these accounts right now because I want to fund their education, not think about it again. And there's some tax forms to file, but they are allowed to do that. So it's a very good wealth transfer vehicle as well. It's a great option for uh, grandparents and other family members who want to invest in uh, the future. And like we were talking about at the very beginning, investing in education, such a powerful, such a powerful gift. Absolutely. I can't let you go without talking about Equifax because, um, and those who aren't familiar, we've had this huge news here in the States of uh, Equifax's data breach, one of the three credit agencies. Uh, Jill, this isn't the first time a a large organization has released information unbeknownst to them uh, to hackers, uh, but it's it's certainly probably the most prominent one. And because it's one of the credit agencies, of course, the, uh, the, um, the type of information being released is pretty dramatic. What should people be doing, especially if you're an American and you've been potentially uh, affected by this? 
Well, first of all, just know that you have about a 50-50 shot that you were affected because over 145 million Americans had their data exposed. And as you said, this is not just, oh, they got my name and my credit card number. This means that hackers, fraudsters have your name, your address, your social security number. Sometimes sometimes they're, they've got credit card numbers. This is a lot of information that's out there. Security experts told me when I was reporting on this that unfortunately, this is information that will live on much longer than you think. Uh, or as one guy said to me, this is in the dark web forever. So just presume that everyone has your information. The first way to kind of get a read on whether or not you're affected is you go to the Equifax website, which is EquifaxSecurity2017.com. You put the last six digits of your social in, your last name, and it says, ba-bing, you either were affected or you were not affected. Presuming you had bad luck, 50-50 odds, right, and you were impacted, you can then sign up for their free credit monitoring service. And you know what? It's okay. You might as well do it. There's no harm in doing it. But remember, there are other credit reporting firms out there. So it's Equifax, Experian, TransUnion, and there's this fourth one, the fourth horseman called Innovus or Innovus. No one can figure out exactly how to pronounce it just yet. So I'm just going to say Innovus. And the, the issue is that even if you had free credit monitoring from one of these firms, even if you put a fraud alert on your account, which is essentially, let's think of it as a speed bump that, you know, there's an alert on your file, which basically says to credit companies, Hey, don't open this up. Don't open up new credit too quickly. Cause there could be something fishy here. That's still not protecting you. The ironclad way of protecting you against anyone opening up a new account in your name and your social is to freeze your credit at each of the four companies. And yes, it can be a pain in the neck. My friend, John Alzheimer is a credit expert and he's like, Oh, it took me 24 minutes to do it. I was like, okay, that's you, but it can be a pain in the neck anyway. And it's 24 minutes of your life that you have to do something that you don't want to do. So I get it but you have to go to each of the companies and you put a freeze on your credit file. Now, please know that freeze means nobody can open up a new credit card. No one can take out a small business loan. Nobody can open up and take out a mortgage that nobody, it includes you. So if you are about to go buy a car and you're going to need an auto loan, you can't freeze your credit. You got to wait till after. Mm. And if you freeze at all four of these agencies and then three years from now, you forget that you froze the account and then you're like, oh, I'm in the dealership. I want to buy a car. It's going to take a few days to unfreeze and then refreeze. I think that it is worth it. I think this information is now out there and there is nothing that Equifax has done that should make any of us feel secure, but that information is not out there. It's there. It's done. It's kind of like the barn door is open. We will now go ahead and protect ourselves. We'll look at all of our credit card statements. We'll go to annualcreditreport.com every year, check out what we've got, make sure there's nothing fishy in our in our statements. But just presume that anyone who wants your information has your information. 
We have a lot of listeners who are outside of the States, too. Is the system similar in other countries, uh, in, in Europe and other places, Jill? Are, are these same three credit agencies also overseeing um, the world's population, or is it is it different depending on uh, geography? It, it is different based on geography. However, I would say that a lot of people who are overseas have accounts here in the United States, and they may be surprised to learn that they have credit files here. Uh, my cousins are Australian, and uh, you know it, it, they have some accounts here from like 100 years ago from when my grandparents might have gifted some money, and I had to go in and freeze their accounts. They're like, what do you mean? How could we have a credit file? We're Australian citizens. I'm like, well, I found it. Mm. And I froze it. So I would be very careful and I would educate yourselves about what your country of domicile's rules are surrounding credit. Speaking of the U.S., the stock market here is at an all-time high. I I looked earlier today, Jill, eight years ago, it bottomed out around 6,000 during the financial crisis. And, you know, there's been a little ups and downs here and there, but it's basically been on a fairly steady upward tick since Today, it's over 23,000, all-time high. Should we be worried that the next crash is coming? Uh, and what, what should the average person be thinking about as far as investments in the market and all that right now? You know, you're absolutely right. This is the second longest bull market on record. Second longest. The longest bull market, 1982 to the beginning of 2000. Should you be nervous? I think that investing in the stock market or investing in general is not unlike uh, my father. My father was a trader on Wall Street and he used to say, you know, investing, it's sort of like swimming in the ocean. I can teach you how to swim in the ocean. I can make you stronger. I can make you aware that every time you go into that ocean, you better have a healthy respect for the fact that that thing is way bigger than you. And sometimes you get clobbered by a wave. Sometimes you take your eyes off of how the waves are rolling in. Sometimes it's calm and it's easy, but you must always have respect for it. And I, I look at the, the investing landscape in the same way. I am not a person who believes that you need to figure out where the top and the bottom is. You don't have to time the market. You do have to have a game plan, a diversified allocation. You've got to have some money in stocks and some in bonds and some in cash and maybe some in real estate. And you've got to stick to your plan. Most people are investing because they've got a goal in mind. I want to retire at a certain period of time. I want to work hard. I don't want to go crazy along the way. And this whole obsession with finding the best and doing it, it's that's not the key. The key is you have to start saving for your retirement early. You have to be diligent and you can't be dopey about the kind of risk you're going to take. If you adhere to that, you're going to be fine. Can I give one more plug for one little one item that I think that many people don't like talking about that I really, really want to emphasize for the vast majority of Americans and, and non-Americans of as course, well? Of course, of course. No one likes death. Please, please don't let your fear of dealing with a spooky, creepy topic rob you of the most important thing that you can give as a legacy to your heirs, a well-thought-out estate plan, a will, a power of attorney, a healthcare proxy, a trust in some cases, not in every case, but please don't be such a wimp not to deal with this hard topic and make your 
survivor's mourning so difficult by not doing what you should be doing today? Mm, good advice. It is a hard thing to tackle and uh, yet it's so important for those unfortunate situations. It's, it makes all the difference. I didn't know this until we were talking before our interview today that you ran your own firm for a while. Uh, I'm curious, what was one of the failures you had as a leader and what did you learn from that failure? You know, I, I was a accidental leader, meaning that I was a person who worked for myself as a trader. I worked in an organization very briefly when I first started trading on the floor of the commodities exchange, and then I worked for myself. And when I became an investment advisor, a money manager, I became an owner in a firm that got very big, very quickly. And I, I became, um, again, an accidental leader. So it's really hard to be friends with the people that you're managing. And I was really friendly and close. It was a tiny organization uh, with, with a few of the key people. And I don't think I managed them effectively because I knew too much about them and their fight, their personal lives. And I would worry about them. And I made choices that I thought were, were good for them, but maybe not for the organization. And so for me, the big leadership lesson was, it's like a doctor. You put the corpus, you put the body first. What is the thing that's most important? What's the right thing for the organization? And then you start fitting the pieces in. How can this person fit? It doesn't mean you shouldn't hire someone outside of a box and put that person as part of your organization, but don't create a spot for somebody just because you like him or her. Make that person integral to the organization, and then you're going to have a more successful relationship. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for your perspective. I know that uh, everyone's going to come away with at least one action, thinking about what we can do different with our money and our finances. And I really appreciate all the wisdom you bring on the Better Off podcast too. I hope people will check that out if they want to learn more. Dave, thank you so much for having me. And I hope, Amanda, that I proved to you that I was worthy of being on Dave's podcast. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Amanda, for listening. Jill Schlesinger is the Emmy-nominated business analyst for CBS News and the host of the Better Off podcast. Thanks again, Jill. Thank you. I forgot to ask Jill for book recommendations for those of us who want to get in more depth on personal finance. I am suspecting, though, that one of the books I read several years ago would be on her list. It's called The Little Book of Common Sense Investing by John Bogle. He's the former CEO and founder of the Vanguard Mutual Fund Company. It really goes through the philosophy of low-cost index fund investing, which for you know most investors, as Jill was talking about, uh, it's really the probably the best option out there. Uh, it's a great read if you're just getting into this for the first time. Maybe you're just starting to think about retirement or you're early in your career. I'd certainly recommend that as a good starting point. Uh, in addition, the Betterment organization is a fabulous option. There's many of these robo-advisors that are out there now, and Betterment's probably the best known option out there where you can manage your own investments. You can do it for a very low cost, uh, much lower than uh, many of us used to pay for other options. And if that's something you've been thinking about or considering, I'd certainly encourage you to check out Betterment as an option. They sponsor Jill's podcast, which I'll mention more about here in a moment. Uh, you can get access to three months free for their service just by going to coachingforleaders.com slash betterment. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-E. 
M-E-N-T. I'll put that link in the notes so everyone can access. Uh, it's a great option. Bonnie and I use it, and we found it to be really helpful in managing our finances. And speaking of Betterment, they sponsor Jill's podcast, which is how I first got connected with her. I've been listening to her show for about a year. I've listened to every episode. It's a great great primer on personal finance. As you can tell, Jill brings a lot of wisdom and humor into her conversations. Uh, check out the Better Off podcast if you're looking to get uh, more on this. I think you'll find it to be a really great complement to uh, the kinds of things you're learning every week here on Coaching for Leaders. And speaking of us, I hope you'll also go over to the coachingforleaders.com website, especially if you've started listening recently. It will give you access to a ton more if you set up your free membership, the member casts, resources, the library of articles online, and you'll get immediate access to my free 10-day audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. If you'll give me 10 minutes a day for 10 days, this course will help you to get some of the most immediate practical actions to become a better leader and covers a number of the topics that we featured on the show over the last six years. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com and you can establish your free membership right on the homepage there. Now, a few other episodes I wanted to pass along. As I mentioned in the intro, while the show is always focused on leadership, once in a while, I'd like to step a little aside from the traditional topics and explore something that you may not normally hear on a leadership show, but are things that I think are really important for us to be well-rounded people and be effective professionals. And so today's recommendations are really in that spirit of uh, some of the past shows where we've done that. Uh, if you'll go over to episode 145, the title of that one was Improve Your Writing with Practical Typography. Matthew Butterick was my guest on that episode. We talked about writing skills. We talked about typography things that many of us have not thought a lot about, or maybe we haven't thought about for 20 or 30 years, depending on the last time we took a college course or any kind of course. Uh, if you're looking for some tips on how to be better and presenting your writing in an effective way, episode 145 is a great uh, starting point for that. Also, on episode 245, I had David Nihill on. He talked about how to engage with humor and how to use humor, especially in the professional context, in order to get your message across. Now, before you dismiss that and say, yeah, well, I can't use humor in the workplace, uh, I, I remember when I recorded that episode a few years ago, I, take, I took a couple of the principles from that episode, put it into practice, and actually put together a mailer, a member for the Carnegie Organization, right about the time that aired. And uh, I, I think I calculated afterwards because I used humor and we got more attention for the mailer. It ended up returning a I think almost a five-figure return on investment for that advertisement we had sent out because it had some humor in it. So humor is a wonderful way to be able to engage people if you do it the right way. David did a fabulous job on that episode of really walking us through what's the right way to use humor, what are the common mistakes that people make. Uh, if you're looking for a way to engage and you've never thought about utilizing humor or you're fearful of utilizing humor, episode 245 is a great starting point for that. And then also earlier this year had on episode 310, Tina Payne Bryson, we talked about how to reduce drama with kids. Tina and her partner, Dan Siegel, are the authors of No Drama Discipline. If you're a parent and you didn't listen to that episode, I would really encourage you to take a few minutes in the next couple weeks. Listen to episode 310. It may change your philosophy on how you discipline your kids and really make a difference in your home environment. It certainly made a huge difference in our home environment when we were exposed to her work. Uh, almost two years ago. So thank you again, Tina, for taking the time to be 
on that show. Again, that's episode 310. To reach any of those past episodes, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number. You can access those easily. Have a fabulous week and see you next week back for a leadership topic. I'll see you next Monday. Take care.